This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm Nana Tan, here to give you some of Matt's best tidbits to help you live healthier, happier lives. I just want to point out something that I think we all tend to forget. There is one person who will be with you in everything you go through in life. There's one person who feels your emotions, who can read your thoughts, who knows all your memories from the moment you were born to this very moment in time. There is one person you can just never get rid of. And because of this, this person in your life can either become your best friend or your worst enemy. I'm talking about yourself. Like it or not, you created you. Maybe not from the very beginning, but all those choices you've made and the thoughts you've thought and the actions you've acted have created who you are now. And because you can never get rid of yourself or leave yourself behind or take a break from yourself, don't you think it would be wise to become best friends with yourself? I think this is one big truth that we lose sight of as we grow older and we become saturated in the expectations of what other people think we should be. And a lot of times, ourselves become our worst enemies. It doesn't really matter how many compliments those around you give you if yourself is always following you around, telling you how worthless you are or how negative you are every other moment of the day. So that's what I want to talk about in today's episode, is becoming our best selves. I think this can really be the first step to true happiness and success. So I want to start off with a very instructive and enlightening interview that I found with an expert, Lisa Ferenc, and she's going to talk about self-destructive behaviors, what they are, and why people engage in them. So we've asked a great expert to join us. Dr. Lisa Ferenc is joining us, and she is... Um, she's uh, the author of the book, Treating Self-Destructive Behaviors in Trauma Survivors, A Clinician's Guide. She's also written the book, uh, Letting Go of Self-Destructive Behaviors, A Workbook of Hope and Healing. She, um, You can find her at the website, which is the Institute for Advanced Psychotherapy Training and Education. Just also go to her other, uh, another website, lisaferentz.com. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having me on. You bet. It's It really is an important issue because th- these behaviors are, I mean, they're extreme, uh, for, but it could be anything from like an eating disorder, a self-destructive behavior it could be an eating disorder, some addictions, self-mutilation, but secrecy, def- you know, lying. Teach us what's going on that would drive somebody to, to want to harm themselves. Well, first of all, I'm very glad that you identified things beyond just cutting. Yeah. Because typically when people, you know, when people hear the term self-destructive or self-harm, they immediately jump to the idea of cutting. And as, as you just described, there are unfortunately many manifestations of self-destructive behavior. And they do encompass all of the eating disorders, anorexia and binging and bulimia, any kind of addiction that can be substance abuse or alcohol. That can also be an addiction to the internet or a sexual addiction, mm. and then certainly any access of self-harm to the body. Um, so what's going on? What's going on, and this is going to sound very counterintuitive, I think, initially to your audience, is that people are doing these behaviors in an attempt to feel better. 
And of course, on the surface, that doesn't really make sense, right? Because right. Why, would hurting, why would hurting your body in some way help you to feel better? But there's a couple of things that are involved in this. And the first is the idea that when you harm the body, you're actually releasing something called endorphins. And those are naturally occurring opiates in the brain. And so when people engage in these behaviors, they do get this temporary feeling of euphoria. Um, and it's also a really big distraction for them. Yeah. So if there are deeper issues, and I believe there always are, there are deeper sources of pain and often trauma underneath the behavior, then these behaviors serve as a way to distract the person away from having to face or feel or deal with those deeper sources of pain. Um, it's also numbing. You know, people eat to the point of exhaustion or eat to the point of actually sort of checking out or what we call dissociating. So there's a numbing, there's a distracting. And in the short term, that does feel better because it's taking them away from that deeper stuff. Wow. So I think, yeah, so I think what's going on is that for people who do these behaviors, and it's millions of people, and it's, it's males as much as it is females, and it's cuts across all socioeconomic lines and, you know, racial lines. It's, it's not limited to any one group of people. These are folks who either have unresolved trauma, abuse, or neglect from the past, or they have some kind of very difficult pain experience that's not been resolved for them. And I believe that they use these behaviors as a way to actually try to communicate to people around them that they are in pain. And they're also using these behaviors to try to sort of regulate all of those painful, difficult emotions that they don't know how to regulate in healthier ways. And and it seems like as parents, we wouldn't we don't understand it because it is kind of counterintuitive. You hurt yourself to actually feel better. Um, but the, the, yeah. it seems like a natural tendency of, of many might be to just demean it, to embarrass their child, shame their child, coerce their child, overwhelm their child, uh, but which, which it seems like would only make it worse. You're exactly right, Matt. And and I think just, you know, I think it's important for us to normalize that that litany of things that you just went through, you know, shaming and cajoling and um, bargaining and negotiating. Those are the normal responses, you know, that would come from a a spouse or a a sibling or a parent, because those people are genuinely afraid, right? They care deeply about the person. They see that they're doing something that's definitely unhealthy and destructive to their bodies. And so, you know, oftentimes we react from a place, even though it's well-intended, we act from a place of anxiety or we act from a place of fear. And so it does come across as shaming the person. And as you're suggesting, not only does that not work, but actually it exacerbates the problem. It makes it worse because now that person not only is trying to reconcile their pain, now they have a new layer of pain because they feel the shame. They mm. know that they are letting down their family. They know they're worried that their spouse may really disconnect from them. Um, they, their friends may, you know, they may be ostracized from their friends. So now there's even more pain and trauma on board, which increases the likelihood that that person is going to again resort to the self-destructive behavior as a way to try to cope. So you can see it becomes like this vicious cycle. And don't we even? I mean, it's one thing to kind of be, I guess, a lay person who doesn't know what we're doing, you know, inflicting some pain. But aren't there even some treatments that we do or we use where 
we we even add more pressure to the person that's being treated as well. We we make it I don't know, we we obligate them, we kind of try to get them to just shift their thinking instead of just re, re, instead of getting to self-compassion and and loving themselves, we just kind of try to create more of a structured solution. You're exactly right, Matt. And, and to be honest, that was my whole motivation behind writing the first book that I wrote a couple of years ago, where I was really trying to speak to mental health professionals, because this is, as you can imagine, this is a scary issue, even for mental health professionals to deal with. You know, a teenager comes into your practice, and they find the courage to tell you that they're cutting themselves, or you're working with a 35-year-old woman who's purge, binging and purging. And what happens is this creates a very normal kind of anxiety in the therapist, right? Mm-hmm. And the therapist's intention is, i got to get this person to stop doing this as quickly as I can. So tradi- the traditional approach to all of these behaviors has been something called a standard safety contract. This has been around forever, where the therapist, again, with good intentions, will say to their patient, in order for me to continue to work with you, you have to sign this contract, and this con- in this contract you're agreeing that between now and the next time I see you, you're not going to do your self-destructive behavior. Hmm. And what has happened traditionally is that this actually creates a terrible power struggle, as you can imagine, yeah. between the therapist and the client. And in my personal experience, going back, you know, I've been in private practice over 30 years, but really started to look closely at these issues about 20 years ago. And I was doing what I was trained to do, which was, you know, make them sign that contract. Yeah. Um, and, and in fact, there were many therapists back then who literally would stop seeing a patient, you know, if they did not comply with that contract. But what I noticed over and over was that not only did the contract not work, but that these folks began upping the ante and they began to hurt themselves more. Oh, interesting. Because in it, right? Because I had inadvertently set up this power struggle yeah. and they were determined to show me that I was going to lose that power struggle. Even by hurting themselves yeah. more. Oh, interesting. You got it. That's right. Because Because in the mind of somebody who's doing this, that's in their control, yeah. right? So here I am as a therapist trying to take the control away from them by telling them what they can and can't do or by even inadvertently shaming them by letting them know that they can't stay in a relationship with me unless they're compliant and do what I want them to do. And so, of course, they're going to retaliate, whether this is consciously or unconsciously, you know, by exerting whatever power they have, which yeah. is hurting the body. That's right. So it's... Yeah, so it became really clear to me years and years ago that this was just not working. And that's what really inspired me, you know, to 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 begin to take a closer look at, like, what are we missing in the mental health field, you know, as we attempt to deal with these issues? Lisa, let's do this. Can we take a break? Because I want to come back and have you answer that and teach us what are we missing and how should we approach them? You know, instead of just creating a contract uh, or even as a parent trying to control this that then creates the controlling battle – Let's uh, let's come back and talk about how to help teach self-compassion and and what are some things we can just do with our own children and how can we find the right uh, caregivers that can that can maybe find a more compassionate approach um, to to getting through this very, very difficult, self-destructive behavior. We'll take a break. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio.
self-destructive behaviors. She's been talking about the different manifestations of self-destruction. It doesn't just mean cutting or suicide attempts, although those are definitely included, but it also refers to a number of things like improper eating habits, negative thinking, bullying, alcoholism, drugs, and the list goes on. She talked about why people do these things. It sounds pretty counterintuitive to me. I can't really picture what she's talking about because I really don't like pain and I try to avoid it any way I can. But she says that pain and self-harm actually release endorphins at first so that people get this false sense of temporary euphoria and it can be numbing and distracting from other pain that they can't control as much. So in essence, self-harm is an unhealthy way of coping with regulating and communicating your pain. So let's continue listening to the rest of this interview where Dr. Ferenc tells us what we should and should not do as family members and friends to help our loved ones work through and overcome these destructive behaviors. Lisa, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And thanks for just teaching us this. Um, what what else can we do as family members? We, we don't necessarily want to go in and control this and try to like take them on or it might you know turn into a a game of kind of cat and mouse where they have to hurt themselves to gain control. What are some things we could be doing as parents? Um, and then just teach us how, how we go about getting the help we need. Sure. So I, I do think there are some important kind of do's and don'ts in terms of how loved ones can um, approach this. I, I want to first normalize that, of course, this is going to create a lot of anxiety and, and fear and even anger and, and, and that that makes sense. Yeah. But what doesn't make sense, and you and I have already alluded to this, is to approach that person from um, by trying to motivate them through guilt, by saying, if you loved me, you'd stop doing this. Um, that will always backfire. Um, what won't work is to use shame or humiliation. I also think it does not work to say to somebody, you're sick um, or you need help. Believe it or not, that doesn't work. Because yeah. typically people get really defensive, you know, <laughs> when they hear you're sick or you need help. And in fact... Unfortunately, in our field, so many people um, make these behaviors synonymous with, with being crazy. And from my perspective, these are not crazy people at all. So what does help, instead of saying um, you need help or you're sick, is to say you deserve support. And I think that that's a much less um, defensive way to, to broach the subject. And it's also a way to communicate that you care deeply about your child or your partner's well-being um, and that they deserve support because they really, really do. Um, I think it's important to communicate a sense of optimism and hope. I wrote the workbook really to help people buy into the idea that there are other ways to comfort yourself. There are other ways to tell your trauma narrative. There are other ways to self-soothe. And we can't expect, we talked before about the, that safety contract, we can't expect people to just simply give up these behaviors. And I think that's an, an important thing for parents to hear. Their child's just not going to give up the behavior because you've asked them to. Right. Um, they, need, they need replacements. They need other ways to accomplish what that self-destructive behavior has been doing for them. And that's where my workbook I have found it's been incredibly helpful for people because it gives them all kinds of strategies to learn how to communicate their pain, uh, to short-circuit uncomfortable feelings, and then to self-soothe in ways that, that are genuinely healthy. I love, so, I love that idea. I mean, just real quick, I love this idea that yeah. um, just the phrase, you deserve support, 
Um, they, they have a coping mechanism. It's not healthy and it doesn't work because it's self-destructive, but for them it works. And to just say, you got to stop it. We, they need other tools, don't they? Exactly right. Exactly right. And that's, again, that's what the workbook is really about. We, you know, because people, because they want to feel better and that's, that's a sign of good mental health, right? Right. To want to to feel better is, is a positive thing. It's just obviously the pathway that they're using to try to achieve that is something that winds up being destructive and it winds up really belittling their sense of self-worth and increasing their sense of shame. So when we talk to parents, when I talk to parents about getting support for their kids, or again, because this is also an adult issue for, you know, a spouse or a partner's, uh, a partner who's engaging in the behavior, it's really important that, that we empower people to interview therapists and to really listen to their mindset about these behaviors. So, for example, if somebody is throwing around the term borderline, hmm. don't see that therapist right. um, because that's such, a, that's such a pathologizing way to look at the behavior. So terms like men, this is mental illness or this is you know borderline, rather than a therapist who can reframe the behavior and say, these are creative coping strategies. Yes, they're not healthy, and yes, the goal is to teach the person healthier ways, and the intention is something that's actually quite creative. And so that's the mindset that you're looking for. You're looking for a therapist who will not do safety contracts because I'm just telling you they don't work. And so um, you want somebody who's, who has that flexibility and understands that that's really not the way in. I, love I think that. one of the best antidotes to shame is compassion. You've used that word today. Yep. Compassion is self-compassion. I think you're totally right. So you want to work with a therapist who gets the concept of compassion, who can be compassionate towards you for the issues that you struggle with, and who's also willing to teach you, the patient, about the concept of self-compassion. Because if you love yourself, it no longer resonates to hurt yourself. No, it's so true. And it seems like you're finally, um, you're finally, by loving them and, and, and being a, a kind of somebody that's a, a more of a proponent of self-compassion instead of just kind yeah. of rule implementation and just gain the character to overcome this, it, it seems like you create a softer space for them to, uh, to find their way out of, um, of the, of the conversation or of the situation. Uh, Lisa, we so appreciate you and the insight that you give. This really is such a touchy thing. I, I highly recommend yeah. that, that they go, they've got to go to your website and look at your books because um, letting go of self-destructive behaviors, a workbook of hope and healing, that seems like such a powerful tool as well as also treating self-destructive behaviors in trauma survivors. If you're a therapist, that's the tool you're going to want to to go be looking for. Go to her website, lisaferentz.com. We appreciate you, Lisa, and um, everybody out there in listener land. These people, they're trying. They're trying to find a way to get through their self-destructive behavior. I mean, their pain using self-destructive methods. Don't add more pain. Don't add more intensity. Don't hate them. Just love them and tell them help them understand that they deserve support and there are healthier ways and you want to help them find healthier coping mechanisms and then find somebody that can really deliver on that. We appreciate uh, you listening. We're going to take a break.
Welcome back. I'm Leanna Tam. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Today, we're tuning to possibly the most important person in our lives, ourselves. The first half of the show, we learned from Dr. Lisa Ferenc all about self-destructive behaviors. In the last segment, she told us that if we know someone who's engaging in self-destructive behaviors, it can be a pretty touchy subject to address, although we want them to immediately stop. But she warned us against motivating them by guilt or shame and saying things like, if you loved me, you'd stop, or you're sick, or you need help, or you're crazy. She said that instead, we should create a sense of optimism and hope for them so they can feel like you will be a sanctuary for them or that there's a way out and say things like, you deserve support. I love what she said at the end of the interview. I thought it was so profound. She said, if you grow to love yourself, it will no longer resonate with you to hurt yourself. And I automatically thought of that Disney movie, Finding Nemo, where the sharks are predators of the fish. They're known as enemies, and sharks are known to hunt fish and kill them. But in the movie, somehow they come to realize that fish are their friends. And once they realize that, then the sharks have no more desire to hurt the fish. It's not as much of a pleasure for them to hunt their friends. And I think this works for us as well. Once we realize that we are our own best friends, we don't get pleasure in hurting ourselves. So for the rest of this episode, I want to help us all become best friends with ourselves so that we stop thinking it's okay to inflict destructive behaviors on ourselves. This next interview is with John Hilton, all about becoming your best self. Dr. John Hilton is an assistant professor here at Brigham Young University and is, interestingly, a professor of ancient scripture, which... By the way, I have Sunday school lesson I'm teaching Sunday I need to ask you about. Let's talk. Um, <laughs> but he also has managed – he's, he's uh, managed social media and public-facing uh, internet sites for, for LDS seminaries and institutes. He received a bachelor's degree from Brigham Young University, went to Harvard, got a master's degree there, came back to BYU because he couldn't get enough and uh, just had to come back and, and got your master's and your, ba- and your doctorate in education. Yeah, correct. PhD from education here at BYU. Holy cow. Uh, you met your wife, Lonnie, where? We met uh, in our undergraduate years. Oh, did uh, you? In the Wilkinson Center, for those of you who are familiar with Brigham Young University. So that's, you know, that's the Wilkinson Center is just the hangout spot where all of the food, you can get all the food you need. You can hang out. That's where you worked your magic. That's right. Good job. And man, you had five kids along the way. Yes, in fact, we just recently had a number six. Number six. So, I have six kids. Okay. I think Bill Cosby had five, and he said he had five because he uh, – I think he said five because four would have – no, five because six would have killed him. <laughs> and I felt the same way, and then I had six, and then I'm like, I- I'm dead. Look how good you're – you're only paralyzed. I know. I can't move my neck. It's because we all sat around watching movies and watching TV and watching football, which started. Hey, um, so here's the deal. John taught a class – I taught three classes at Education Week, and a lot of you have heard about Education Week. It's been on the show. We've been, we actually broadcast live last week from Education Week. It's where about, I don't know, 20 or so thousand people gather, thousands of different classes. I don't know the numbers. They don't ever tell me, so I always make them up. But um, at least 20,000 people. There's a lot of people here. Yeah. And then, but John taught two or three classes, which is where we got this topic idea for becoming your best self. You had three different classes on how to become your best self. Yeah, different aspects. You know, for example, taking responsibility versus making excuses or oh, yeah. not comparing yourself to others, the language we use. There's so many ways, I think, that we all know we could be a little bit better than we could Okay, so talk about taking responsibility. You see in our culture 
you know, worldwide, you see a lot of people that are blaming a lot of people for a lot of their problems. By the way, they're probably all justified. And there's real data, right, that other people, you know, influence you. But apparently taking responsibility may be more important than blaming somebody. Why? Well, to yeah. our happiness, to our growth. There was a, a leader, Lynn Robbins, came and uh, spoke once, and I was I was there, and he said, anytime you make an excuse, it will hurt you. Huh. And I've come to really believe that's true because at the core, it starts to weaken me. I start to believe that I can't. I have to. Oh, yeah. She made me. I yeah. don't have time. And And it's so easy, though, to make an excuse. I mean, just think if you're trying to wrap up a conversation with someone, oh, hey, sorry, I got to go. I got to. Who, who is forcing you to, to leave? You know, yeah. but it's just it's more polite. It sounds yeah. better. It but, is. But when we when we actually take responsibility for actions, I think it strengthens us on the inside. Yeah. Haven't you noticed just and we'll get into your words later, but owning your um, choices, it, it, it changes every choice you make from here on out. Right. It, but it's hard because I hear my kids say, yeah, the coaches made me do this and. I had one of my sons that had a pass interference call. He's a receiver. He caught a great long pass, but he also climbed up the defender and pushed off a little bit. (laughs) None of us wanted to admit that. But it's just interesting trying to teach your kid that the story you're going to tell right now about the pass interference is really important. Right. Because this is either you're going to learn from it right now or you're just going to add more stories. And we do. We like our stories maybe more than the ownership. It's so much easier. Why so is that? You're an educator. Well, I think for one thing, it sounds better. It sounds a lot better if he made me. Mm-hmm. I didn't have a choice. The coach made yeah. me. That guy ran into me. Right. There's no responsibility. I'm yeah. It's much easier. We live in a culture that I think in large measure doesn't want to take responsibility because it's much easier for someone else to. Yeah. Well, think about that. He can blame the guy that ran into him. He could blame the position they were they ended up being in. He could blame a quarterback for a short throw. He could blame the refs for not seeing it. I mean, there's no end. The problem is none of those are going to make him better. Well, and the other thing, too, is that all of those lead to uh, no consequence. Because if it's not my fault, I shouldn't have to bear a consequence for it. But if I do take responsibility, then I'm going to be yeah. at some level held accountable for why, but again, that that's the point, though, John. Nobody wants the consequence unless it's a touchdown. Except for yeah, that's true. <laughs> In that case, that's true. I think that part of the part of the interesting thing is that maybe there is there's a positive consequence that comes when we take responsibility that we don't see immediately. Hmm. It comes in greater trust. Yeah. Uh, for example, in an interpersonal relationship, greater strength of character. Yeah. So there is the positive side, but it's easy to go for the quick fix of the excuse. You know what? It's I see, You see it a lot in sports. Um, I don't know why, but I'm becoming... I, I When I first time I saw it, I thought they were barbarians. I like mixed martial arts. Hmm. I mean, if you look at UFC. Me, you, yeah. I mean, UFC. You could be a competitor. Don't you think? Yeah, for sure. Ripped. Uh, James laughs. Alyssa laughs. Rude squared. Um, but... But one of the things I noticed, so like if one of those uh, you know UFC guys kicks somebody in a low blow, almost always they'll admit it. My bad, I got mm. it. My bad. Or if they do something wrong, they'll stop. And and it's which is weird for me because these uh, you don't see it in football all the time. Like if you did something wrong, we should say something. You know, I used to teach high school, and I, I taught my high school students about. Take, taking responsibility versus making excuses and the language, you know, saying yeah. I chose to instead of I had to. 
Well, a couple of days after I taught this class, one of my students showed up to class uh, late and then later on skipped class altogether. So I called his parents because you know, this was becoming a pattern. And sure. He came back to class the next day and he was mad. He said, you know, why did you call my dad? I got in so much trouble. <laughs> I said, well, why did you skip my class? And he said, because I chose to. <laughs> and I, you know, I thought it was good. It, he, That's great. He had the language down, <laughs> and then we had to talk about well, just because you chose to doesn't mean you know there's no consequence. Well, associated. well, and you chose to call his dad, right? It's all choices. And then, and I think when we realize that, we're stronger. I agree. And, and again, I guess you also see a direct parallel to becoming your best self. I mean, you can't become your best self if you're never going to own you. Because you can't fix it because right. it's not your fault. It's someone else's fault. And as long as it's someone else's fault, I can't fix it. But if I stop making excuses and take responsibility, now I can do things I've never done because I'm in charge. See, I, I love that. And I can hear because I, I teach that to my clients. And then a lot of times they look at me like, so I'm the reason? You're saying I'm the reason that my husband is a jerk. And I'd say, well, No. He's just a jerk. But you're the reason you got so offended that you did mm. this and then the cops got called. So how do we not go too far and you know what I mean and take the fault if it's really not our fault? And how right. do we know where's what's the proper line of taking responsibility? You don't want to take more than is yours. Yeah, and I think you're right in some circumstances clearly this could be a negative yeah. a negative thing. For me I think one of the keys is to look at the choices that I'm making either to act or to respond. Mm-hmm. You know, so for instance, you can choose to say something rude to me, I can choose to be offended by that, I can choose to walk away. You know, and, and obviously in extreme cases I'm going to choose to call some authorities to right. restrain you from negative actions in the future. Yeah. But all of those are my choices, and when I realize that, it, I think it makes a big difference. Oh, it, t- it totally does. We're talking with Dr. John Hilton um, about – he's a professor here at BYU, assistant professor, and he's teaching us you know, different ways to become your best self. Taking responsibility is one of them. Um, is there – I guess is there a downside to taking responsibility, to being responsible for your life? Is there a downside? I mean, the only downside is along the way – we're all going to make mistakes, and so I'm going to be held accountable yeah. for those mistakes. But in the long term, the upside is I become stronger and people trust me more. I mean we think about it. Everybody out there in listener land, think of somebody you revere. Think of somebody you respect. Think of somebody you'll follow. Odds are there's somebody that they, they take responsibility. I mean you, think about, you, you they... think about a phrase like the buck stops here. Uh-huh. You know when a politician says that, Wow. I'm, yeah. I'm impressed. I, well, think I know. This guy took responsibility. <laughs> you don't then, hear that all the time. Well, you hear it all the time, but they never do it. <laughs> right. right. I mean, they never – then you want them to take it. Okay. Because you're – okay. But then, well, it wasn't me. Right. I don't run the whole government, just these parts of it. It's that, that's, the, that's an important part. We trust people that are responsible. That's powerful. We're going to come back. We're talking more with Dr. John Hilton here from Brigham Young University, associate professor here, and he's teaching us – Uh, Some keys, some tools to make sure that you're becoming your best self. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Remember, trying to help you find the good in the world. You're listening to Brigham Young University or to BYU Radio right here on the campus of Brigham Young University.
Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Leanna Tan, and this is The Matt Townsend Show. We're learning how to be our best selves and how to love ourselves. I want to point out that we're not trying to say that you have to be your best in order to love yourself, but that it's all-inclusive. Being the best version of yourself means that you love yourself, and as you continue to strive to be your best, you will grow in love for yourself. In the last segment, John Hilton talked about the role responsibility plays in becoming our best selves. He says that it starts with taking responsibility for your own faults and choices and the consequences of your choices. Don't blame others for what's going on in your life or who you've become. Take accountability. But they also warned that there's a boundary to that. Don't go taking responsibility or guilt on for things that you didn't do or were completely out of your control because that will only lead to a spiral downwards. So let's take it to the next step. We are going to continue listening to this interview with John Hilton, and he's going to dive into the subject of what he calls the cancer of comparison. Dr. Hilton, welcome back. Thanks. Great to be here. Good to have you. Talk about comparison, because we live in a world where everybody is comparing themselves to every, everybody else's perfectly, beautifully, you know, airbrushed self. Yeah, let me just start out with a little story. I was I was teaching high school students, and we were talking about the propensity of comparison. And I had them all write down on three by five cards. This is maybe on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. They're writing down on three by five cards. How how does comparison affect you? That Saturday, uh, I had been building a swing set for some time. <laughs> that was the day we finished it. That and, that, that, that could take years. Yeah, it took me five months. A lot of help from my brother in law. How many parts were left over? Well, <laughs> we just hammered them all in at the end. <laughs> But I'm not handy, you know. Oh, yeah. So th- this was a huge endeavor for me, and it was a magical day. You know, the swing set's done. We're enjoying it. My girls come up to me and they said, "Hey, Dad, there's only one problem with the swing set. There's just three monkey bars." And I said, "Girls, you're gonna love those monkey yeah. bars because we're never getting any more." That's right. I was so happy. I go back to school on Monday, and um, we, we talked on the subject a little bit more. Some students who hadn't turned in the three by five cards turned them in. So that night. I'm reviewing all their comments, and my wife and I and the kids were driving to my brother-in-law's house for a little barbecue, and I could not believe that all of my students struggled with comparison, the popular kids, the cheerleaders, everyone. So as we get out of the car, I say to my wife, you know, these high school students have a huge problem with comparison. We walk into my brother-in-law's backyard. The first thing I noticed was... His four tricky bars. (laughs) His swing set had five Five monkey monkey bars. Five monkey bars. And all of a sudden, I thought, my swing set is junk. Yeah. Yeah. And I I realized, whoa, it's not just the high school students that struggle with this. I struggle with this. Because if you loved your children, you'd give them a five monkey bar. Exactly. And we're not, we, we still have three monkey bars at our house. We're all very satisfied with the are monkey they, bars. But are your children developmentally, they're behind everyone, <laughs> right? They're not as monkey-ish. It's been a challenge. It's <laughs> but, isn't a challenge. It, but something as simple as that. Right. And then, or you move in and we had, um, we had a kid the other day come over and told my son that he thought our house was messy. Wow. Yeah. So I took him out. <laughs> I knocked him right over you know, onto a pile of something. But all of a sudden I'm thinking, What? Well, it happens all the time. Your kids say, hey, you know, everyone else has a phone. Oh, hey, dad, everyone else gets to go see this movie. It's, oh, uh, yeah. it's a comparison. Or what kind of clothes am I wearing? How do I look? How do I perform yeah. relative to well, others? I mean, I guess that makes sense that you'd compare. It ex- does. Except it doesn't bring you well, joy, and, and, happiness. And, and it may be – I have to admit it, it may be – there may be some cultural differences. I taught uh, this past summer in China. And in my class in China, all my students – 
uh, were Chinese, and they had a very different view of comparison. Most of them said, I compare myself academically to others, and I, if I do worse, that motivates me to improve. Oh, interesting. But I found that oftentimes when I've talked with high school students in the United States, at, at some level, there's a discouragement. Mm-hmm. There's a, I got a 95 on my test. I'm so excited. What'd you get? I got 100. Oh, I'm not as smart as you. you know, e- even yeah. when I succeed, yeah. I, I feel bad in comparison to someone. Oh, my voice isn't as pretty as hers. Well, it seems like it's, it is a death cycle because you will always find somebody that's better. Better. Right. In, in any category. So you're really only happy as long as you're better, I guess, than the people around you. And, and, well, and that's kind of funny because a- after this experience, I started interviewing people actually to talk to them about comparison. Just, I was at the Chicago airport, saw three young ladies. And so I randomly approached them and said, I'm doing some research on comparison. Do you compare yourself to others? And one girl said, yeah, I try to have ugly friends so I feel better about myself. <laughs> and her friends were right there. <laughs> They're like... Uh, that's awkward. <laughs> They're mouth breathers. That's uh, sad. But but that's the point is that so then it it actually can create a very negative cycle. Yeah. If I want to surround myself with the people when I compare myself, I feel better about myself. That creates a very low bar yeah. uh, for who I become. Do well, I become my best self if I hang around with people who I say, oh, yeah, they're not that great. Because I'm oh. better than them. Well, and it never ends. You buy a house. So then your house has to be comparably better. You Your yard has to be. Your cars need to be – I mean, you're dead. The minute you're in the game of comparison, you're dead. That's so true. And and even if you are quote-unquote better, then you're still hurting yourself because oh, yeah. it, you know maybe you are smarter than them, but maybe you were given more resources or a better gene pool That's or right. your parents you know, taught you better. So th- even to get at the idea, then there becomes a strong connection between comparison and pride, which also leads to unhealthy behaviors and attitudes. Now, you have a dare that I guess you, you have – What's the dare that you give people? Yeah, well, what I do is it's just simple. Dare not to compare. Just those four words. Dare not to compare. Dare you not to compare. Dare you not to compare. Yeah. And, you know, we do all sorts of silly stuff when people dare us to do it. And I think if you take that dare not to compare, even just just watch yourself over a 24-hour period of time. Do you find yourself comparing? What do you do, though? I mean, I guess how do you – because for some reason, I guess it's fulfilling a need – it just it's like doing it destructively. Right. It's killing you as you're doing it. Well, I think part of it there's the there's two types of comparison, right? There's the I'm better than you yeah. and then the I'm worse than you. Yeah. And maybe the solution depends on the type of comparison that you have. Yeah. So what do you do if you say I'm not I, I I'm worse than this person? How do you resolve that? Yeah, you go under and then well, normally you wouldn't think that you're even worried. You're not worried about your comparison. The minute you start feeling negative, you just go in your hole. But the nice thing is I think if you're, if you're taking this dare not to compare, then hopefully instead of going in the hole, you can kind of yeah. go up yeah. and look down at the situation and say, wait, am I really worse than this person? Is yeah. that even the right question That's to be right. asking? Yeah. How, my better question might be what could, what could they teach me? Right. How could I learn from this person that knows so much more about this? And I think that's a great key. And also to realize it, it's not a competition. It's mm-hmm. not you versus me. And, and even if you are better than me in some area – undoubtedly I'm comparing your strength with my weakness. Oh, every time. That's okay. And part of it, I think, is just giving yourself permission to be your best self, not anyone else's best self or their best attribute. Because it seems like I call them overs and unders. So when somebody is overly confident because they're better than others or they're underconfident, either one of those are only in comparison. So your, your confidence still comes in contrast to another. But your con- you have to figure out a way 
to find out who you are, not in contrast to everyone else. You have to find some other way to know you're valuable, you're incredible, you're essential. That's the hard thing, though, isn't it? And I think one of the keys is you can't you can't look to the comparison. Right. You've got to look outward. And for some people, that's going to be your mom because your mom loves right. you no matter what. Yeah. Um, and for some people, that's going to be other sources of inspiration. But we can, I think, find value by looking to not others but ourselves. Am I doing my best? Am I doing better sure. than I did last week? And and that, I think, is a great direction to start. You also talk about gratitude and how gratitude could help us to – kind of shore up this part of us. Yeah, and this is a little tricky because oftentimes, uh, this last summer I took my children to Mexico. We did some humanitarian work, and and that changed me. And I think it changed them. And every once in a while we'll talk about some of the things we did and we'll say, well, I'm really grateful that we have X. Yeah. And they didn't. And then one of my smart aleck children will say, Dad, dare not to compare. <laughs> You know, because usually I'll say something like, yeah. you should be grateful you had oatmeal for breakfast. Some people don't have any breakfast. And well, dad, dare not to compare. <laughs> so it does – it comes back to haunt me, I guess. But I, I think there is something about the gratitude. If mm-hmm. I start saying, okay, here's some things that I have in my life that I'm grateful for, all of a sudden maybe some of the sting of comparison yeah. goes out. Because maybe I don't have everything perfect, but there are so many things that I do have. Oh, yeah. Well, and what's – Again, not everything that's valuable can be measured, right? A lot of things have to just be measured with the heart and, you know, you might just be more sensitive. You might be more spiritual. You may not compare in every category. How do you compare empathy? Right. Oh, I'm so much more empathic <laughs> than those guys. I mean, you're in a battle the minute you're trying to compare something that, that is more subtle that might matter more. Right. Or how, spirituality. <laughs> I mean, man, I wish they were all as spiritual as I am. It's just <laughs> – it doesn't work, does it? No, no, absolutely not. It's powerful, though. That's, I mean, I think when you get into this, you're, if you want to figure out your best self, you're not going to find it in everyone else's best self. You've got to know what are you supposed to bring. Right. You've got to look at what you have and what gifts are uniquely yours and do the best you can with yeah. those things. And if you don't bring the best you've got – I mean, again – one musician raised by another person compared to your parents might bring something else. So what are you supposed to bring to this world as a musician, as an artist, as a football player, as a human, as an accountant? And that's the key. The race is not against each other. Mm. It, and I think often we're in a competitive society, so it is. It's me versus you. How am I going to compete versus these people? And, and maybe one of the keys then along with gratitude is I just want to get outside of myself. Instead of comparing myself to you, I look at you and say, how can I help this person? How can I build them up? How can I help That's them huge. succeed? It's not me. Well, and two, parents need to make sure you're not creating the comparison. Well, John caught three balls. Why didn't you catch any balls? Right. You were right there. You dropped three in a row. And I, er- I, I think if when you say, well, you're smart and your sister's pretty, what they hear is yeah. you're dumb. That's right. Or yeah. you're ugly. Yeah. You know, they'll, they'll take the negative <laughs> side of the comparison. Yeah, that's so true. We're listening to Matt and John Hilton talk about how we can become our best selves. In the last segment, they discussed the cancer of comparison. And I think this is such a vital part of self-actualization to address because In another segment I was listening to, they said that 100% of people engage in self-destructive thoughts, and that all begins with comparison. I don't even know if it's possible, though, to avoid comparing yourself, because I think it's almost a natural part of living and the way we've evolved. But I do think that there is a way to control, maintain, and do it in a healthy way. 
So think about it. Are you only happy when you feel like you are better than others around you? Or are you comfortable letting others be their own degree of smart or pretty or rich? Matt and John talked about how comparison is just a death cycle. You'll never get out of it because no matter where you go or who you're with, there will always be someone better than you at something. And you will always be better in some ways than someone else. So you'll just run yourself ragged if you're always trying to compare. And I think we've all seen this destruct even the best people. I was working as a volunteer with an organization trying to serve others, and I saw so many of my fellow volunteers barely be able to get out of bed in the morning because they were constantly thinking about how little they were accomplishing or if their efforts had any impact or why they couldn't be better at this or that. And it was like, we are here to serve others. The only thing that was stopping them from lifting others was themselves and their negative talk and their belief that their efforts weren't good enough. And we see this all the time. So let's finish off this interview with John Hilton, where he talks about how we can get rid of this negativity and these stumbling blocks to our best selves and become builders of those around us rather than wreckers. Talk about words. You, I know that was one of your classes was on specifically the words you use. And this is one of my favorites because it, it actually relates to everything we've been talking about today. When I speak, do I use language of excuses, language of responsibility? When I speak, do I compare myself to others? How do I treat others? So much of it is in the words. Oh, yeah. If we can control our words, yeah. that's huge. And it's, it, it, we, I guess people are like, oh, that's just the words, whatever. But the words make you think, right? And then the words make up the story, and you're going to believe the story. Right. And, and over time, I think it's one thing to think it, and obviously we've got to control our thoughts too. But once we speak it, it we start to believe it yeah, more exactly. and more and more. There's a poem I once heard. Um, goes like this. I watched them tearing a building down, a gang of men in a busy town. With a ho-heave-ho and a lusty yell, they swung the beams and the sidewalls fell. I asked the foreman, are these men skilled? The kind you'd hire if you had to build. He gave a laugh and said, no, indeed, just common labor is all I need. I can easily wreck in a day or two what builders have taken years to do. Hmm. And so I thought as I walked my way, which of these roles do I try to play? Am I a builder with a well-made plan, lifting others the best I can? Or am I a wrecker who walks the town, content with the labor of tearing down? For me, that poem really just puts puts in really stark context the words that we use. Am I a wrecker or am I a builder? And it's it's so easy oh, yeah. to, to be sarcastic, down, to right? tear down. And it's a little more challenging to build up. But you think of the people in your life who have made the biggest influence on you. They were the builders. And and it's so subtle, isn't it? Because it doesn't have to be like a ton of just stroking of your ego or whatever. It's It's sometimes not saying something. That should be said, right? Or that you that you would think would normally be said. What did uh, Thumper's father tell him? If you can't say something nice, yeah. don't say nothing at all, right? That, that's a challenge. And by the way, that's going back to taking responsibility. A lot of us, we can't believe someone's offended by what we've said, and yet you didn't have to say it, and right. you didn't have to say it that way, and you didn't have to say it at that time in that moment. I mean, we have a lot of choices about what we say. Yeah, and I think especially. Um, when we are consciously aware then of our words, how we talk, how we treat other people, it can, it can become enormously mm. important in becoming the very best people we can be and helping others to be their best. Well, imagine just the bullying that's going on with these kids nowadays. I mean, everybody, we, we, everybody had somebody on the, on the playground that they knew was the bully, right? 
And ours, it was the drug addict. We, we didn't know if he did drugs, but he looked like a drug addict. <laughs> and um, he probably had his own issues, his own pain, his own problems. But today, you know, you can be bullied by your friends constantly. They can just keep using words to tear you down. So talk about gossip. Talk about uh, – I guess if you're trying to build yourself up with words, but you're tearing someone down, you're really not building yourself up. Right. I think gossip is you know, whether you're 5 or 55 or 95 – it's it's yeah. hard. You know, who doesn't want to know the secrets and the latest news? And you tell me this, and I'll tell you that. Right. But the idea is that we can use our our language so much more productively. I remember one time, uh, I, I in a work context, I noticed there was one woman who, anytime we started kind of gossiping a little bit, she would always just leave the conversation. She didn't, you know, preach a big sermon to us. But I noticed that, and it made me want to live, yeah, live a little a better level. as well. So I, I don't know that we – like you said, sometimes the best thing is, is not what you say but what you choose not to say. That's right. Well, and think of what that does. That, again, that's you taking responsibility and not being a part of you know furthering. Right. I choose to negative. separate myself. Stephen there. Covey always said that you, um, you need to be loyal to the absent. Right. So only speak about others as, as you would speak if they were in front of you. Well, and, and I'm sure we've all had experiences. I remember one time teaching high school class, there was a student who just was always really bugging me, writing notes to her neighbors and stuff. And I talked to her about it, and I saw one day she was writing a note, and I was on the verge of you know publicly humiliating yeah. her. And I, fortunately, I just stopped. And after class, she came up to me and said, uh, you know, Mr. Hilton, here's a note that I wanted to write you about how much I love your class. You know, and it turned out that uh, yeah. sometimes maybe we're quick to look for the bad mm-hmm. or to comment on the negative. But if we're positive, uplifting, if we look hard enough, there's almost always something good That's we right. can say. Well, and there's a lot of words that would that will always be good. I love yous. I'm sorry's. Thank you. My bad. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, how many times would just a thank you? It makes a huge difference. Make a difference. Yeah, I, I, so I, I think back, you know, in, in some of the experiences that I had in high school, and even you know, as an adult, where maybe an offhanded comment, someone was meant to be funny, but it hurt me, and I remembered that, and I thought about that, and I'm sure the other person, you know, just kind of walked away, never thought about it again. So I think that's an important principle: is so often we hear humor mm-hmm. that is meant to be sarcastic, to downgrade, yeah. and, and that's easy to do, but. But I think that's something that, that overall does not help us become the best we can be. And there, I guess, too, along with words, there's tone, there's your timing. I mean, Sounds like you must have teenage children. Oh, mercy. I do. And they're beautiful. And But, the, I mean, like, you know, I just know there's just sometimes it's not worth talking about. Right. You know what I mean? It's, you just – we'll wait. I'll wait till I have a moment where there's more higher trust, then I'll bring it up. Yeah. Hey, can we talk about what happened this morning? It's yeah. so easy to just go with – and we think as parents, if I don't tell them now, they won't learn the lesson. But So we end up pushing it when it's not the right time, when they're not going to hear it anyway. You know, I, I read a book once. I really liked this idea, and I, I'm sure everyone can tweak it. But the idea was talking to husbands and wives saying that you need to give each other – feedback on how things are going, but maybe you do that once a week. Yeah. So you can live in a criticism free zone for seven six days and twenty three hours a yeah. week. And then there's one hour where we're gonna let's sit down and talk about the hard issues. Yeah. And and I found that I'm not the you know perfect in implementing this, but when I do and so I'll I'll write something down, usually by the time yeah, it gets it to that point you're like, nah, that wasn't even a big deal. I know. And there's so many you know, what we thought was this huge issue 
that then we just don't worry about. You see, yeah, a lot of stuff will just dissipate. But then if you have this need to have to bring it up now, we got to talk about it now. If you were thinking about, you know, what what's the biggest key to becoming your best self? You've talked about taking responsibility, comparison, watching our words. What would you say is the one thing that makes the biggest difference? I think the biggest difference, you know, it that, that's a that's a loaded question. It's, it's that, very loaded. That, that is a challenging. I one. even took away three. You've already said. <laughs> See how that works. I think the biggest difference actually is in owning yourself. If, if for you to say, "I'm in control here. I'm in control of my emotions. I'm in control of my actions," that when you really understand that you're in control, that fundamentally changes everything else. You mentioned Covey, yeah. going back to the idea of being proactive. Yeah. you're that, a sort. You're an agent in your life, right? And you're here to act, not just be acted upon. You're not here to just be tossed. You're here to, once you're tossed sometimes, figure out how you're going to act. Right. And so in that case, then you're in control of, if you make excuses to take responsibility, you're in control of comparison. You're in control of the words you use of every aspect of your life. Love it. That's Dr. John Hilton. Holy cow. John, appreciate you. Thanks. You got to run and get your kids. It's been great. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. We're going to have you back. I love what they just talked about. Sorry, I don't mean to just be on a Disney craze, but the last segment reminded me of that movie, Wreck-It Ralph, where the character Ralph's role in his little video game is to wreck things and tear them down. But no one likes him, and he's never invited to the parties because no one likes to be around someone who's constantly destroying what others have built up. And so he keeps trying to seek validation from others by winning other games and thinks, man, if I can just show everyone else that I'm the best at something, then they will include me and invite me to the party. But in the end, he finds his deepest happiness and friendships by helping someone else achieve their goal and being a builder. And I hope that's something that we all think about today after this episode. Are we being builders or wreckers? Is the language you're using tearing someone down, even in joking, or are you lifting others, inspiring them, and making them feel good about themselves? I hope you take what these experts had to say to heart. You can accomplish so much more when you befriend yourself rather than fight against yourself. Instead of destructing yourself, build yourself up. Take care of your needs. And the more you love yourself, the stronger tool you can be in building up those around you. Well, thanks for listening to today's episode, everyone. I'm Liana Tan, bringing you the best tidbits to help you live happier, healthier lives. Join me again next time for another episode of Matt Townsend.